I am so excited about tonight. I've been looking forward to this for a month. Uh, we had this idea a month ago when we started this unexpected series, knowing that this unexpected series would create some discussion around the gospel. And, um, and as you may know, Rancho has a, a very distinct presentation of the gospel that is thoroughly grace-based. And so we're going to talk about that because it comes with some implications that sometimes are uncomfortable, especially for people who have been raised in churches. And the more strict the church, the more uncomfortable the gospel of grace actually is. And so we thought, you know, instead of just our normal preaching routine uh, during this winter series where we're presenting the gospel and having some good conversations in small groups, why don't we open it up and let's have a conversation. Sunday nights is a culture of conversation. In fact, uh, here at Unplugged, every Sunday night, uh, it's more casual, it's, it's on the floor here, and uh, once a month we have an interactive conversation. There are text-in questions, live questions, and so thanks for being a part of it. Uh, we do have a text-in number, and that number is... Right there, 951-379-3795, 951-379-3795. I also want to say hey to the Facebook Live crew. Um, we're going to have quite a few visitors on there as well. I actually got word today that there will be a seminary class checking in tonight, which is a little bit intimidating, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't have very many letters behind my name, so uh, anyway. But I'm excited to share the gospel. It is my favorite part of ministry. I get to do a lot of cool things with a lot of cool people. But the best thing I get to do, not just week in and week out, but day in and day out, is share the gospel. Now, let's begin with a little lesson. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. That's right. Good job. It means good news. It's very simple. Gospel is that, uh, is that word that kind of hangs over from, you know, old English, and we kind of kept it because it's so sacred to us, but a lot of people don't understand what the word gospel means. It's simply good news, and it's called good news for a reason, because the power of the gospel is extraordinary. Some have called it the most powerful force on earth is the gospel, and I happen to believe that. Here's what Paul said about the gospel in Romans 1, 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believe. Now this is the, the power of God. It is the very thing that God is moving forward on the earth in extraordinary ways that is transforming this earth, transforming individuals, transforming families, transforming families of faith, the church, transforming communities and transforming the world. It is the power of God bringing salvation to all the earth. So we're gonna talk about what salvation is and why the gospel is bringing salvation. Uh, my kids and I built the uh, largest whiteboard ever constructed here this afternoon, and so we're going to cover that with the gospel. I'm hoping it's not too complicated. There's going to be a lot of stuff on there, and feel free to text in or ask live questions as, as we go, and especially at the end of that gospel presentation, there'll be a good half hour, 40 minutes for interactive questions, so we look forward to that. Now, at Rancho, we present the gospel every service, every week without fail. Every service, every week, without fail. Every message is manuscripted. Today is manuscripted, word for word, to make sure we take great care in not just the study of the Bible, but the preaching of the Bible and the teaching of the gospel. Every service, every Sunday, we preach the gospel without fail. Now, here's the reality about the preaching of the gospel, and this is key for today. If you've been to Rancho, you know how strong this is in our heart here. In order for the gospel to be the gospel, so in order for our message to be truly good news, it must be entirely uncorrupted by the stain of religion. Entirely. That's a trick. That is a trick. Now, when I talk about religion, this is my definition. 
Religion is a system of doctrines, traditions, rituals, and moral standards that promise to earn God's approval, earn God's blessing, and earn God's rewards, including the eternal reward of, of heaven. This is religion. There are a lot of religions, 200 and some formal religions on the earth, right? And everybody's got their own belief system. Everybody has this idea of what God wants. Everybody knows we're, we're sort of distant from God or separated from God. We can't cr- quite grasp him. We can't meet his standards. So, so individuals and communities come up with systems, right? Systems of doctrines, traditions, rituals, and moral standards to try to attain God because if we can attain God and earn his approval, then he'll pour out blessings on us. This is not the gospel. Religion is not the gospel. Anything man has to do to earn God's approval isn't good news. It's bad news. It's terrible news. It's the worst news. So in order for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to be entirely uncorrupted, unstained by religion. Now, Every religion, sadly, including the Christian religion at times, includes these doctrines, traditions, and rituals and moral standards to earn God's approval. And frankly, and I I am very sad to say this, I don't see most of the time much difference between a Christian presentation and any other religion on earth. It's just another set of doctrines, traditions, rituals, and moral standards to earn God's approval. It has to be corrected. And it has to be corrected with vigor. It has to be corrected with boldness. It has to be corrected with passion because the human nature will run to religion every time. And we'll see why here in just a little bit. We run to religion. We love religion. We eagerly grab onto it. Why? Because I can earn God's approval. And do you know how good it feels for me to earn God's approval? Do you know how good that feels for me to believe I'm earning God's approval? It feels so good because then I can look at you and say, well, you're not earning God's approval like I am. Feels very good to be right. Feels very good to have the right religion. It feels very good to earn God's approval. But in order for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to be unstained by religion. All right, so what is the gospel? I'm gonna give you the most brief summary of the gospel. It is certainly not the whole picture. We will spend eternity, right? Delving the depths of the whole picture. Here's just a, a basic snapshot. God is a heavenly father who loves us and is eager to save us, not an ominous force eager to judge. Most people believe God is an ominous force eager to judge. Well, that's not good news. The good news is that God is in fact a heavenly father and he loves us and is eager to save, eager to forgive. Secondly, in love, Jesus, the son of God, was sent by the father to show the full measure of love by bearing the sin and suffering of the world upon himself, dying on a cross to pay the penalty of our failures in full. Very good news. If we, don't have, if we don't have an atoning sacrifice, that means we are left in our sin and we have to figure that out ourselves and I'm telling you that it's not very good news. Third element of the gospel. In victory, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating hell and bringing new and eternal life to this world that God so loves. That resurrection is victory, right? If Jesus Christ died in our sin, our sin would still be the victor, consuming even the son of God. But because he rose again from the dead, walked out of the tomb, and ascended to be with the Father, there is victory. We have the absolute assurance our sin is gone, done, done. Cast as far as east is from the west. Cast into the deepest ocean, it is gone. It's good news because of the resurrection. And then finally, upon belief in God's saving grace through Jesus Christ, we are reborn. When we believe in that good news, we're reborn, made new, free to enjoy life as a dearly loved child of God, living in God's forgiving grace now and forever. This is the pleasure 
of believing and receiving this good news. Everything is made new. God's spirit awakens us. God's spirit quickens us. God's spirit gives us a relationship with him. God's spirit allows us to enjoy God, enjoy one another, and advance the cause of Christ. So when I'm prepping a message around here, I do not consider a message totally prepped until the gospel is in that message and preached. That message preached every service, every Sunday. That's why I'm so excited about tonight, because we get to dive in a little bit deeper. Now, this is called the scandal of grace. And you might be thinking, well, so far, so good, right? Uh, what's, in, what's scandalous about that? Well, we'll get into it, right? Now, when we talk about grace and we talk about the gospel, I have a little litmus test, all right? Here's a litmus test as to whether the gospel was truly preached. Here's the litmus test about the gospel preaching. If the message doesn't offend religious people, the gospel wasn't really preached. You might be thinking, well, that's kind of mean. Are you out there intentionally offending people? And I would say no-ish. But when I see Jesus preaching the gospel, there's pretty intense backlash. When I see Paul preaching the gospel, there's very intense backlash. Now, thankfully, people aren't being crucified and jailed and beheaded in the United States of America, but they certainly are in places in the world right now. The gospel offends religious people, people who are you know, raised perhaps in these strict, staunch, we are right, here are the moral codes, here's the set of doctrines, here are the rituals, here's the right way to worship. Those people are offended by the gospel. So gospel hasn't really been preached unless somebody's offended. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 1.10, the most offensive book in the Bible, by the way. There's a lot of offensive things in the Bible. But the most offensive is Galatians, the entire book. Galatians 1.10 says this, now, um, am I trying to win the approval of human, human beings? What's the answer? No. no. That's a waste of time. Or am I trying to win the approval of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's Paul's introduction because he's about to unleash the offense of the gospel in the six chapters of Galatians. So I'm not eager to offend people, but I'm telling you when the gospel is preached, people are offended. Religious people are offended. Now, I love religious people. I was a religious people. But everywhere the gospel is preached, religious people go nuts. It's always been the case and will always be the case. Who went nuts on Jesus when he noted that the religious people were obeying the minute details of God's law, straining out gnats from their wine so they won't eat creepy crawly things according to Deuteronomy, right? But Jesus said, you're neglecting the more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Who are those people freaking out on Jesus, actually plotting his death? It wasn't the hedonistic Roman pagans. They had no particular problem with Jesus. It was the religious people that did. The religious self-righteous who couldn't stand their precious law being properly defined by love, grace, and mercy. The only time the Romans got involved in the whole situation is when the religious people staged a riot in Jerusalem to force Pontius Pilate to get rid of Jesus, and he did so reluctantly. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in this man. The Roman pagan hedonists have no problem with Jesus. It's the religious people that have a problem with Jesus, and they forced Rome's hand. Who went absolutely nuts on the Apostle Paul when he said all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse? Who went crazy on Paul? It wasn't the hedonistic Roman pagans. They didn't bother Paul 
until the religious self-righteous mobbed him again in Jerusalem because he introduced Gentiles into the family of faith. Can you believe it? Gentiles equally a part of the family of faith. Everybody's welcomed by faith. It's the, it's the religious leaders who went crazy and they conspired with Rome to have Paul arrested. Now, when Paul was arrested, the Romans said, we find no fault in Paul. They didn't find any fault in Jesus. They didn't find any fault in Paul. And even Governor Festus looked at Paul and said, hey, listen, uh, you're going to be a free man. We don't, we don't find any problem with you. I know the religious people do, but we don't find any problem with you. And Paul says, I appeal this decision to Rome, to Caesar. Paul, there's the door. You can go. I appeal the decision to Caesar. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel to Caesar. He said, okay, Paul, have your way. Eventually shipped him off to Rome where he was, in fact, murdered for his faith. See, the hedonistic pagans don't have a problem with Jesus. They really don't. They don't have a problem with the gospel. They have a problem with the religious self-righteous. The religious self-righteous had a problem with Jesus. The religious self-righteous had a problem with the apostle Paul. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to the religious Jews. It's a stumbling block to the philosophers of the, uh, of the Greek culture that wanted to have everything figured out, right? They wanted to have all knowledge. They wanted to have, and the Jews wanted to have all religion, all dialed in, all buttoned up. Well, it just doesn't work like that. When we preach Christ crucified, it takes human beings out of the equation. This is the scandal of grace. It takes human beings out of the equation. We have no part in God's saving grace. He pours it out upon us. You see, Christ crucified takes us out of the picture. That is deeply offensive to the people who are saying, I did it. I've got the right religion. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. They're out. I'm in. They're wrong. I'm right. Well, the crucifixion of Christ takes us out of the picture. That's scandalous. Our forgiveness and our eternal life is the saving work of God. He simply reveals it to us, and we simply receive it. 17th century Puritan theologian Richard Seib says this. I love this quote. God knows we have nothing of ourselves. We have nothing to offer God. There's nothing we can do to earn God's approval. We've got nothing. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, God requires no more than he gives, and he gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. God gives us grace. God gives us mercy. God gives us the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and God is content with what he gave to us. He's not content by what we give to him. What we give to him is, frankly, of no consequence. A simple concept, really. Forgiveness is a work of the offended, not the offender. This is pretty key here. Forgiveness is a work of the offended, not the offender. So God is the offended, right? He looks at the state of humanity and he grieves. What we've done with the beauty of his creation, what we've done with the gift of being made in the image of God is horrific. And he grieves that. He grieves that. He's the offended. Forgiveness is solely in the hands of the offended, not the offender. Salvation is solely a work of God, not us. Two of my four kids had significant issues when they were young. I think they're all in this room. One freaked out about nothing all the time, from the time he was born. Came out of the womb freaking out about nothing. The other wouldn't sleep for five years. Five years. We thought we were going to die. No sleep. One kid freaking out, another kid not sleeping. Thank you. Forgiveness was our job, not theirs. 
we were the offended ones. We got to deal with the freak out kid and we got to deal with the no sleep kid, right? But what did we do? We approached these kids with forgiveness. You're a kid. You got some issues. You got some issues. I got some issues. I got more issues than all my kids combined. So what are we going to do? We're going to live a life of forgiveness. We're going to live a life of grace. We're going to live a life of love. So forgiveness, this is really key here. Forgiveness isn't a transaction. It's not a transaction. I, we didn't have to, every time one, one child freaked out and every time another child, you know, wouldn't sleep, we didn't have to go and do a whole system of transactional forgiveness. Uh, did you say you're sorry? Are you asking for forgiveness? Are you sincere? Right? Did you say the right words? Did you do, ah, now that offense is forgiven. Forgiveness is not just a transaction. It's the nature of our relationship with God. This is, this is where we start getting a little bit in the weeds here because so many people still believe, even in the Christian churches, that forgiveness is transactional. I sin, I'm separated from God. Therefore, I have to confess that sin. I have to ask for forgiveness. I have to free myself from that sin. I have to sin no more. And then over time, God will get me back into his good graces. Oh, that's terrible. It's religious, horrific stuff. Forgiveness isn't a transaction. It's the very nature of our relationship with God. He deems us forgiven by, by, by identity. Not every sin is a unique transaction that has to be re-forgiven. Paul speaks of that in Galatians. We don't have to keep crucifying Christ all over again. Come on. We are forgiven. He just simply declares us perfect sons and perfect daughters no matter what we do. See, the religious think they earn something by their goodness. They earn something by the whole rituals. I sin, therefore I have to grieve, I have to confess, I have to repent, I have to get back right with God, and then he'll come back to me. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare. Religious people have the sense that because I am right in my doctrine, because I've repented of my sin, because I have said the sinner's prayer, because I keep myself devoted, because I keep myself obedient, because I keep myself committed, therefore God's happy with me and I keep his approval. The scandal of grace is different than that. The scandal of grace blows all that up. The scandal of grace says this, grace is not earned, it can only be offered. There's nothing we can do to earn it. God just gives it. Grace is easily demanded but difficult to give. And the reason why religious people have such a hard time with grace is because it's hard for us to want to see grace given to others. We love to see grace given to us because we're right and we're moral and we're good and we're holy and we're pure and our doctrine is right and we're good church people, but don't give it to them, God. It's easy to accept. It's easily demanded but difficult to give. Grace also kills judgmentalism. Oh, imagine a world without judgmentalism. What a great world that would be. Religious people love to judge because they don't understand the scandal of grace. Very often I'll have a conversation with someone that goes like this. This happens all the time. Pastor Scott, the gospel should be offensive. Are you offended? Uh, then the gospel's offensive. The gospel's not offensive to the sinner. The gospel's offensive to the self-righteous religious. It's always been like that. So we've got an approach tonight. Here's what we're gonna do. There are just uh, some things I gotta throw out there, right? Number one, I want us to know that our whole approach to the gospel, and we'll go for another uh, hour here. We will be done right around 6.30, then we're, we're gonna stick around. We are coming from the perspective that the Bible is God's inspired word, absolutely trusted to teach us about who God is 
and his saving plans for this world he so loves. We're trusting in the inspired word of God. Secondly, biblical truth comes by discovering the message the original author intended for the original audience in the original culture. This is the hermeneutic. This is how we study the Bible. We can't study the Bible to say, oh, I just read it in English from a copy of a copy of a copy in a translation. It speaks to me this way, therefore it's true. No, it's, it's more complicated than that. It's not impossible, but you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge to interpret the Bible correctly, which means we are discovering the message the original author intended for the original audience in the original culture. That's a little bit of a, of a trick. Third, very simply, the gospel is life. In the scripture is the revelation and the truth of the gospel, this good news of our standing with God by his grace alone. And so that's the treasure that we're mining in God's word. Fourth, the gospel is the simplest concept imaginable. You might recall earlier just really four tenets of the gospel. Um, that is it, its simplest, I think, and, and most natural state. However, we will spend the rest of eternity, I believe, delving the depths of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. I want us to understand, uh, this is real important, I am a theological pastor, I'm not a theologian. There's a big difference there, right? There are uh, doctors and PhDs who've given their entire life to the study of theology. I've given my life to the pastoral ministry in a theological context. So just so you know who you're talking to. <laughs> Six. Not every biblical loop can be closed. Some people will get uncomfortable with that. Well, the, every loop in the Bible has to be closed nice and tidy. It just doesn't quite work like that in the real world. Keep in mind the Bible contains 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in three languages in eight different literary genres. So it's very possible that the way the Bible is worded in ver certain verses over this vast 66-book landscape of God's inspired word, phrasings can be a little different. We're not talking about contradictions. We're just saying that not every loop can be nice and tidy. So we might have some untidy loops tonight, all right? I'm coming from an evangelical perspective. Evangelical just simply means we want people to hear about Jesus and salvation comes when people hear about Jesus and God's grace. So that's what evangelical is. It's kind of a bad word today in the West, but I'll say I'm proudly evangelical. People need to hear about Jesus. I'm also coming from the perspective of a, of a reformed bent, reformed theology. And uh, we won't get too detailed into what that means right now, but that's basically the bent that you'll see up here in a few minutes. All right, let's go over some ground rules. Got to get rid of this TV, so somebody get rid of that thing. I don't want to see it anymore. Let's go over some ground rules, and as we do go over the ground rules, um, I, I want us to take this somewhat seriously. Uh, we will have uh, mics after this presentation up here. We will have uh, mics available uh, out there for the audience. We will have Facebook Live questions as well as text in questions. And so I want to make sure kind of the ground rules are, are fairly clear. Number one, this is a conversation, not a debate. All right? You know the difference between a conversation and debate? Be nice. <laughs> we can be nice. We can be clear in our wording, and we can be passionate, but be nice. Uh, number two, we will focus on the big picture and try not to get bogged down in minute detail. We can go on a ton of little rabbit trails here, which would be fun. If we had a day, I, man, I'd be here and it'd be the most exciting day of my life. But we don't have all day. Third, we will focus on the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. This is not a Bible answer session on every biblical topic. We're going to touch on a lot of biblical topics, and we might want to go down the rabbit trail there, but we're going to stick big picture on the scandal of grace. In particular, I'm going to try to really discipline us not to talk about predestination. There will be a lot that comes up 
kind of around that, we can't get into it. Uh, people have been fighting, especially college students, have been fighting about that forever, and we're, this isn't the time for that. Uh, also, we're not going to talk about the end times very much. It's going to appear right here, but we're not going to talk about that very, that much. Our December conversation was about the end times, and we had a very fun panel up here. It was awesome, and you might have missed it. That's on you. So uh, we're not going to talk about that very much. Uh, we will take questions, not comments. We will take questions, not comments. We're going to try to control that a little bit, just get as many people involved as possible. Uh, and um, the uh, moderators are going to hold the microphones. So don't try to grab that microphone. The moderators will hold the microphone. If you want to preach a little sermon, uh, let me suggest that you start your own um, uh, forum, and I'll go to that one. But today is just for uh, questions at the end. All right, so let's talk about the four scandals of grace. Now, I have in my mind what this should look like, and I hope it's not horrible when I'm done with it. So um, just try to, try to bear with me here on, on how this comes together. It might be kind of pretty, and it might be kind of ugly. We'll see how, how that happens. There are four scandals of grace, four scandals of grace. Now, the four scandals of grace, uh, to me, are, they fall into four categories. One category is what always is, what always is. That's one category, so we'll talk about that. The other scandal of grace is what was. Another scandal of grace is what is, and another scandal of grace is what is to come. You might consider this kind of a timeline from eternity past to eternity future, and the scandal of grace has to do with four specific blocks in that uh, continuum, and so I think we're gonna have some, some fun today. Now, to frame this, I wanna talk first about my own experience very, very briefly, because my religious experience is very normal, it's very, very common, particularly if you're about my age. Uh, when I was a child, we didn't go to church very often. I remember going to Easter service, and I remember I didn't like it. It was the worst hour of my year. I hoped my parents every Easter would not remember that there's actually church on that Easter Sunday morning. But sure enough, they knocked on the door, said, we're going to church, and, uh, and let's go. And I hated it, didn't like it. But I had some ideas about who God was. I had this notion that God was perfect and powerful. Now, I'm sure most of us grew up with that understanding that God is perfect and powerful. Nod your head if that was your understanding as a kid. God is perfect and powerful. So I got that, right? I understood that. So as a kid, I understood that God was perfect and powerful, and I also understood that I'm not perfect. You see the problem there? God's perfect and powerful. I am not perfect. And so let's just call this um, well, here's what we'll do. We're going to call this sin. Now, sin is a religious word for faults, flaws, failures, you know, mistakes. So we're going to call this a, a veil, right? Here's a veil that separates a perfect and powerful God from sinners. Now, I had sin in my life. And the reason why I knew I had sin in my life wasn't just because what was in my conscience, but because when I went to church and when I heard things about God, there were rules, there were rules about God, and there were rules about what he wanted. The Bible calls that the law. And by the way, sin and law are linked in the Scripture. 
You really can't have sin without law. Law reveals sin. If you don't have the law, you don't know what sin is. This is kind of out of Romans chapter 7 in particular. So the sin and the law separated me from a perfect and powerful God because I knew I had sin in my life. Now, I went to a concert at church uh, when I was in eighth grade. It was kind of your typical 1980s horrible Christian band. And... um, and, you know, it was fine, and it was a night out, and, um, and then at the end, there was a preaching of the gospel. And I understood for the first time that Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. I understood I was under judgment. I understood there was a wall of sin. Jesus Christ died for me, and I received that message. I received that message. In fact, I still remember to this day, I think I was in eighth grade, when my mom, and she's back there, took me home. I remember telling her, I received Jesus Christ tonight. It's the first time I really felt the love of God because I saw the love of God on the cross. Here's a little bit of the problem. As soon as I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver, as the Lord of my life, I was taken to a back room, the follow-up room. Ever been to a follow-up room? Fun stuff. I'm three minutes into God's grace, and what do I get? Here's what you gotta do. Here's what God requires. God requires you to read the Bible. God requires you to pray. God requires you to obey. God requires you to go to church. God requires you to serve. God requires you to share your faith. Three minutes into God's grace, what did I get? I got religious rules. This is where I lived, I'm going to say, for about another 10 years. I lived in this. This is what God requires. It's it's religion. God wants me to do these things. If I sinned against him, and what 15-year-old boy doesn't, I felt as though I was right back here. I was right back to separation. I had disappointed a perfect and powerful God, so once again, I was under judgment. Once again, I was under condemnation. And in fact, the the Bible teaching that I was engaged in at this time was very, very focused on obedience. I I had Bible teachers and mentors focused on obedience. In fact, so much so that the line was, obedience proves you're a follower of Christ. If you're not obedient enough, maybe you're not even saved. Have you ever felt that thought before? Have you ever sinned against God and thought, maybe I'm not even saved? Sinned against God, maybe I'm gonna burn in hell in a torture chamber forever? Have you ever lived under the weight of religion, going back to this whole idea of guilt and shame and separation from God and believing that you've gotta earn your way back to God's grace by repenting of this sin, by asking for forgiveness. I remember trying to remember every sin I committed on a particular day because I thought if I didn't remember that sin and if I didn't uh, ask for forgiveness that I would be condemned, maybe not even saved. I was a youth pastor for 13 years, thousands of kids, most kids live in this religious kind of thinking. That's the religious upbringing. It's normal and natural. Most everybody lives there in the Christian religion and every other religion. It is really a terrible thing. Really a terrible thing. This is the pressure to perform. And in religion, there is pressure to perform. In church, we hear the same thing every time. Here's what you should do. You're not doing it. Go do it. That's church for most people. Church was a constant list of things you need to do to please God. And of course, the pastor pretends like he does it all perfectly, and he doesn't. My teaching influence focused on this idea that sin separates me from God. So even though I had received the love and grace of Christ, if I didn't do this well, I could not be assured 
that I was not going to be under the fierce wrath of a perfect and powerful God. Making Jesus Lord of my life, I was taught, was evidence that I'm saved. Rarely did I have the confidence I was saved. And let me be clear. When I did have confidence I was saved, I was the most judgmental person on the face of the earth. Why? Because I had earned God's approval. I behaved for a certain period of time. I was so proud I believed the right things, lived the right ways, good church boy. And look at those people. This is the normal way of doing religion. It's a set of lenses. So I brought my old man glasses. I had to get more of these, and I have to keep amplifying the magnification. We look at the Bible and look at God through a set of lenses. Now, my lens was this, the priority of God. This is what I was kind of raised in. This is a religious mindset, that the priority of God and the priority of his word was to make me a better, stronger, more committed disciple. That's what I thought God wanted from me. And I was wrong. That's a religious notion that God's priority and the Bible's priority was to make me a better, stronger, more committed disciple. That's not true. That's a lie of religion. It's the pressure to perform. I've got to do better. I've got to be stronger. I've got to be more committed. And then I began to realize that a couple of things were wrong here. The pressure to perform in the church circle didn't actually make me any better. It actually made me more guilty. And then when I had moments of success, more judgmental. So the pressure to perform, to obey, to read, all this stuff, that pressure to perform didn't actually do any good. Then I also realized, as you look into the Old Testament, you see the Old Testament is essentially a story of an entire people group trying to get God's approval by obedience to the law. How to work for them. Not at all. Not at all. So I had my grace awakening. My grace awakening uh, came when I was just neck deep in Bible college. I went to two Bible colleges. I went to a really good one that um, is still around today. It's a great, solid Bible college. Uh, great seminary attached to it. I, I went there. I had a great time. Very educational experience. Very conversational like, uh, you know, like we're going to do here in a minute. It was a great time. Then I ran out of money. And uh, that grace of God did not extend to the tuition payment. Unfortunately, I tried to rub that in their face, it didn't work. So I went to another Bible college that was much cheaper and horrific. Most legalistic place I have ever stepped foot into, but it was cheap and I had to get done or I wouldn't get this job. <laughs> I got through it, but it was awful. A dark, dismal, awful place. It was the worst of the worst. It was the worst of arrogance. We are right and they are wrong. We are good and they are bad. And this is what God requires of us. Let's go do it better, stronger, more committed. And after a year in there, I thought to myself, this is disgusting. And I am disgusting because I was just feeding the same thing in my own ministry. Just feeding the standard line of religion. Here's how to earn God's approval. It was gross. So I had my grace awakening. It was a whole new lens, whole new set of glasses. And I looked at the Bible entirely differently. I looked at God entirely differently. Now, it was tough. Transitioning from one lens to the other, transitioning from religion to the scandal of grace is not easy. It took three years to kind of deconstruct a lot of things and three years to rebuild a lot of things. And here's what was resurrected. The priority of God and the priority of the word is freeing humankind from the bondage of religion into the freedom and enjoyment of God by his grace. That's what God is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. 
So you look at the Old Testament, beginning with a beautiful story of God intimately crafting heaven and earth and intimately creating life and man made in God's image, walking together in a beautiful vision of the whole earth filled with people enjoying God. Then humankind rebels against God's vision and they take every effort to build their own kingdom of greed and power, tearing the world apart by materialism, violence, and injustice. How does God respond to us tearing his beautiful world apart? He responds with heartbreak and grace. Heartbreak and grace. He doesn't annihilate all of humanity, right? He's very clear about that. I'm not annihilating all of humanity. I must bring a stop to violence and injustice. That's an act of grace. And then I'm gonna give law. And God gave us the law as an act of grace. The law is very gracious. The law of God is very gracious. Uh, The law of God enabled mankind to avoid tearing each other apart into a black abyss of death and violence, destruction, greed. The law was an act of grace. It kept us civilized. It keeps us from tearing each other apart. The law is given for the purpose of civilizing the barbarianism of human nature. God says, here's a moral law. This will keep you from burning each other to the ground. Here's a ceremonial law to keep you looking up because you are right now ripping each other apart down here. Here's a prophetic vision that one day a new reality will emerge where there is no need for a law. Let me show you quickly. Prophecy out of Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God says there's coming a time we don't need a law that's written down on stone or paper or, you know, in in church sermons. We don't need a law anymore because that law is going to be in your hearts. And we're going to walk together in relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. And they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The law was given really for three reasons. The law was given to, to civilize humankind. It's an act of grace. God gave us the law. Ten commandments, Old Testament law, to civilize us. Psalm 19, 7 through 8, Romans 2, 18 through 20. The law was given in grace to reveal how far we fall short of God's standards, Romans 3, 20 through 23, Romans 5, 20. The law reveals our sin. Wow, we fall short of the glory of God. The law was given in grace to lead us to God's saving grace. The law was never intended to purify anybody. Nobody is purified by the law. Paul makes that very clear in Galatians. And then at just the right time, under the law, Jesus was born. For the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the scandal begins. So I'm gonna run this as fast as I possibly can. I'm gonna try to get done by six. All right. We are going to call this what always is. We're gonna call this the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven always is. What did God say? God says, I am the great I am. That's what he says to Moses, right? I am the great I am. God always is. Now, the kingdom of heaven is eternal, right? And so the kingdom of heaven is going to go all the way through what always is, uh, what was, uh, what is. Kingdom of heaven is moving, moving, moving. And we'll just do that. Now, there is also the kingdom of the earth. The kingdom of the earth. This is where you live. Did you know that? 
kingdom of the earth. Now, we know that since God's creation, the kingdom of the earth continues through what was, continues through what is, and we'll just stop it right there. That is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, as we know, includes God who is, uh, always is, the great I am. He is, in fact, perfect and powerful. We got that one correct. God, in his triune relationship, he gives a covenant of grace. This is critical. Covenant of grace. Now keep in mind, we're not talking about anything on earth yet. We're just talking about God who always is. He, do, he, he, he established a covenant of grace. Now the covenant of grace includes several things. It includes making man in his image. Now by the way, this is a covenant made before mankind was even, before time even began. God made a covenant of grace that man would be made in his image. Number two, that creation would break. God absolutely knew that. There was no surprise there. Number three in the covenant of grace, that the Son of God would take on humanity. The fourth element is that the Son of God would bear the brokenness by the cross. Sorry, my handwriting is terrible. The fifth element is that the resurrection would bring victory. Now, this is very important. All this was made before time even began. Now, how do we know that? We know that because of verses like 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. Do we have that verse on the screen? He has saved us. God has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. When did God's grace apply to our lives? Before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the covenant of grace made before we were even born, made before time even began, that God in his, in his triune sovereignty decided to make man in his image. Creation would break, the Son of God would take on flesh, and he would bear the brokenness of this earth on the cross, paying for it in full, and there would be victory over death and sin through the resurrection. This is a scandal. Why is this a scandal? It's a scandal because we're out of the picture. We are out of the picture. This is, in fact, grace alone. And grace alone is absolutely a scandal because we have nothing to do with it. Now, I want to be clear about grace alone. Grace alone extends through everything. Everything is about God's grace. Through what always is, through what was, through what is now, 
and through what is to come forever. That's the first scandal. The first scandal is a grace alone scandal that takes us out of the picture. Now we know our biblical history. God is perfect and powerful. There is this veil that separates God from man. It is a veil, a veil of sin and the law. And again, these are linked. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, according to his covenant of grace made in eternity past. Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ comes revealing a whole new way of life, a whole new vision of God, that God is a, a heavenly father, eager to love, not eager to condemn. That was new. Jesus Christ comes, and, and he shows us by what he teaches and by how he lives the command of love, not navigating 600 laws, but the one law of love. He sums it all up. There is one law in the kingdom of heaven, and that is the law of love. He has religious people chasing him down, left and right, chasing him down, looking for every little betrayal of every little jot and tittle of the law, and Jesus time and time again confronts them, even confronting them vigorously in the temple courtyard, screaming seven woes at them. Jesus Christ ends up giving his life on a cross. When he gives his life on a cross, what happens to the veil? The veil was torn in two. Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in full. The law is no longer ruling over us because he fulfilled the law. Sin is no longer ruling over us because Jesus Christ bore our sin once and for all. There is never a time where we should feel under the condemnation of sin, ever, because Jesus Christ took care of it. And then on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Now, as Jesus Christ rises again from the dead, this is the victory, the victory over sin, the victory over death. This is this incredible glory this incredible glory that resides in what always is, that came to what was, that goes all the way through what is now, and this glory will continue forever by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about this, what was, there's many scriptures that talk about this idea that we were saved. We were saved in the past. This is salvation by Christ alone, received by what? Faith alone. These are the next scandals. Christ alone. What does 1 John 2.2 say? It's on the screen. 1 John 2.2 says this. He, Jesus Christ, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, his death on a cross was sufficient to pay the sins of the entire world, everyone who ever lived. He bore the price of every sin that had ever been committed, the violation of every law. He took it all upon himself. Romans 5.18 says much the same thing. We are saved by Christ alone. This is the other scandal. We have nothing to do with it. It's all a work of Christ, but we receive it by faith alone. And so the question is, what do we need to believe in order to be saved? And I'm gonna just suggest four things, and they're pretty simple. We need to believe that we are broken, that we have sin, and we need God's grace. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? We need to confess our sin. And in that context, it's referring to people who said, I have no sin. And John says, there are people out there who say they have no sin, they have no problem, they're, they're lying to themselves, right? 
In order to receive forgiveness, freely given from God, we need to confess that we are broken. We also ought to understand that God is love. I'm not sure how we have a relationship with God or receive his grace unless we stop seeing God as an ominous judge and start seeing him as a loving heavenly father. And then, of course, we have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected. We have to understand that God loves us to the point of the crucifixion of his only son and that our sins are forgiven, paid for once for all, and that there's victory through the resurrection, victory in this life and the life to come. We get to enjoy God and the life he gave us now and forever and then to receive it. Receive God's grace. Now this is 1 John 1, 9. God is love, 1 John 4, 10. Uh, the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 8 through uh, 10. And then to receive that, John 1, 12. Now I'm gonna put some things below the line here. And this could get a little interesting and I'm gonna try to go so much faster here. Are there any other doctrines that we need to believe to be saved? And is there anything that we need to do? Do we need to repent of our sin in order to be saved? And I'm going to just say no and no. No and no. And I've said that before, so that's no shock. But this is scandalous. Religious people want a big list of doctrines. We have to. And there's been debates and debates about doctrines, the essential doctrines. Um, I was in a room of 120 Bible students, and I said, I need you to write down every doctrine that we need to believe in order to be saved. 120 Bible students. How many of those lists matched per perfectly? How many? Zero. Zero. Yet there's so much argument. What must we believe in order to be saved and fight, 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 because we're all religious and we gotta be right. And I don't think any. And I, um, I look at the thief on the cross thief on the cross was saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I don't think he knew a heck of a lot about his doctrine. How about repenting from sin? Now, this is one that's kind of interesting out there. Do we have to repent of sin in order to be saved? Now, the way religious people understand that is I have to turn from sin in order to receive grace. Do we understand how ridiculous that is? I have to stop sinning to receive grace? If I have to stop offending to receive forgiveness, that's not grace. Does that make sense? Every single time the Bible talks about repentance in the New Testament, as the gospel is being preached, it's talking about turning from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ. It is not referring to getting rid of sin in your life. You've heard the old story maybe, you know, do I have to clean myself up before I take a shower? It's silly. We don't come to Christ, the one who gave his life for our sin, by becoming more sinless. Doesn't that just make sense? I don't have to become sinless to receive the gift of forgiveness through Christ. The formula for my forgiveness isn't Jesus plus my sinlessness. It's Christ alone received by faith alone. And I just see these four things as just beautiful, beautiful things to receive. First John, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is just very familiar territory. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is a gift of God. All right. 
Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Then we have what is. This is our life right now. Uh, We'll be quick here. Is reading the Bible important? Is it important to save us? What's the answer? No. Is praying important? Yeah. Is it important to save us? Is obeying God important? Is it important to save us? Is church important? Is it important to save us? Is serving others important? Is it important to save us? No. Is sharing our faith and you know, relationship and important? Absolutely. Is it important to save? No. We've got to keep these panels pretty well separate. And this is where I think people get a lot of trouble. There's a lot of trouble here because a lot of religious people, a lot of Christians are living in this panel here. This is my life right now. This is what is. And I am told constantly I have to do more, do more, do more. And the, the implication or the express teaching is that, boy, if you don't do this enough, God will disapprove of you. If you don't do this, God won't bless you. If you don't do this, you might even have your salvation at risk. That is awful. That's the slavery of religion. Yes, these things are important. In fact, the Bible is very clear. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, there's this idea that we are being saved. Salvation always is by the covenant of grace. Salvation was by the cross of Christ and when we receive Christ. There is a continuing working out of our salvation according to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. According to 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, let's go ahead and, and, and put that up on the screen. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving current Currently, the end result of your faith, because we're growing in Christ. In context there, people are, um, people are, are, are being um, persecuted, and they are enduring. They're really doing well, right? And, and so they are receiving currently the salvation of their souls. Salvation always is by the covenant of grace. Salvation was by Christ alone, faith alone. And salvation is continually being worked out. We are saved in Christ We are secure in our salvation. Our works cannot earn our salvation. Our works cannot remove us from God's saving grace. In Christ, sin does not separate us from God. Do you hear that? In Christ, sin does not separate us from God. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. You do not need to ask for forgiveness in Christ in order to be forgiven. This gets people crazy when when you say that. I can't tell you the, the weight that that is on people. I have to remember every sin and confess every sin and ask for forgiveness for every sin in order to be forgiven. No. When we received Christ by faith, we did need to understand that there's sin in our life so we can receive God's grace. But we don't have to ask for forgiveness to be forgiven. Is it good to be sorrowful when we blow it? What's the answer? Yeah, it's healthy. It's good. Is it okay to pray, God, I'm really sorry. I, by your strength and by the help of one another, you know, can I become more and more like Christ? Absolutely. We do not need to obey in order to keep our salvation, and you cannot lose your salvation. John 10, 27 through 29. If we can lose our salvation by what we do, then our salvation was not by grace. Mic drop. Ooh. We are secure in Christ. We are also growing in Christ. We are also growing in Christ. And that's what this is all about, right? We're growing through the Bible reading. We love studying the Bible. Growing through prayer. Growing through obedience. Growing through the church together. Growing by serving. We grow by sharing God's love with one another. This is us growing in faith. And then together we advance the cause of Christ. This is our mission statement as a church. Advance the cause. 
Thousands of friends advancing the cause of Christ. That's what we're doing right now. This is our life right now. God's grace always is by the covenant of grace. We received Christ in the past by Christ alone, received through faith alone. This is our life right now. And it's a wonderful growing community, connecting in love, connecting in grace, enjoying God, enjoying one another. We are secure, totally secure in Christ because of what he did. We don't look to our obedience for our security. We look to the cross of Christ and the resurrection for our security. But we're growing wonderfully, and this is exciting, right? Not meeting standards and religious standards and the weight of guilt and threats and fear. No way. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all, all, all fear. And then we have the wonderful privilege of advancing the cause of Christ. We look at the ministry of Christ. We see what he did and we want to do that. We want to impact people and families and communities and impact the world. Towards the end, and I'm just going to have to be real brief here, there will come a day of resurrection. I don't know a lot about this. There's not a lot said in the Bible. What is said about the day of resurrection is in uh, allegorical terms, and it's hard to connect all the dots and close all the loops. But what I do know is that there will be a day of resurrection that comes, and according to the beautiful promise, this is going to get kind of ugly. According to the beautiful promise of Revelation 11:15, the kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the next slide. This is the seventh angel. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Heaven and earth merge at the day of resurrection. There's a bodily resurrection for all who believe very quickly because I am so late and I am so sorry. In this, Christ returns. At the day of resurrection, the kingdom of earth becomes the kingdom of heaven. At the day of resurrection, there is this bodily resurrection. We will be raised as Christ was raised. And the eternal church, this is the, the new Jerusalem. This is an, an, an allegorical word picture terms. The new Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth. That is the church. John says, I want to see the bride. The angel says, I'll show you the bride of Christ. And the new Jerusalem comes down. This is the eternal church. All tribes, all tongues, all nations enjoying unity together as we enjoy unity with God. And that's our eternal state. This is received by faith in Christ for the glory of God alone.